started. This is uh, week four of our confirmation class. Or actually, no, it's week three. I'm sorry. I got my weeks all mixed up. Uh, but this week, we're going to talk about uh, the church and her calendar. And it's fitting that on a night when we'd be talking about time, we would be talking, we would be starting uh, 10 minutes early. Um, so that's always nice. Um, if you do, uh, there's a great book uh, on world history uh, by, oh, I'm trying to think of his name now. I'm going to shut this door first. Daniel Bernard Borstein. He has a book called The Inventors. I think it's called The Inventors, something like that. But he traces world history uh, through the uh, development of inventions, technology. Um, and uh, guess what the first technology he traces is from the very early primitive civilizations to modern times? What do you think he, uh, where do you think he would begin his, his survey of history? Moses' tablet. Language. Close. Good guesses, but no, not language. Not a tablet, huh? Religion? Not religion, though it is related. It's a technology. But we might not think of it as a technology. Well, uh, burial? Nope. Uh, I'll, I'll give it to you, or else we might be here all night. Um, uh, the calendar is the thing that he uses. And then, and then, of course, as we progress, the clock, how the clock developed. And it's very interesting um, because from the beginning of time, we humans have tried to mark the time, to understand the time. Um, so if you study the history of civilizations, like Borstein does in his book, you'll find that one of these common denominators across the board is an attempt to measure time. Now, it may have been done through different mechanisms, solar calendars, lunar calendars, uh, various kinds of clocks, water clocks, mechanical clocks, sand, uh, sand uh, glasses, hourglasses, um, sundials like we have out in the garden but it's almost like part of the human quest has been to master time in some way as humans i think our natural sense of time is what we call chronological one thing after another which is reflected in the way that our calendars and clocks are set up time is a series of successive moments on a timeline and the question is how we divvy up those timelines. We need this way to think about time in order to function. Otherwise, you wouldn't have known what time to show up tonight, um, and we wouldn't know what time to end tonight. Well, actually, we're not great about ending on time, but you know. <laughs> but it's how each of us get up in the morning. It's how we navigate our lives. We wouldn't be here if we didn't have time. At least we wouldn't be here all at once. Still, in the church, our view of time is not purely chronological. That's not to say the chronology doesn't have its place, but rather that we don't end the story there, at least not strictly so. Of course, we look forward to the end of time, which implies a kind of linear conception. There is a beginning, there is a middle, there is an end of time. But... The sort of linearity of time is not necessarily how we organize our time as the church. So there's some, I think, tension with a purely chrono chronological view of time, uh, and that is what we find in something like Revelation 13:8, "And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are written, are not written in the book of life. Sorry, who are, and 
Let me just start that again. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So when did the crucifixion happen according to Revelation 13? I mean, on the one hand, we can say it happened here on the timeline. You know, it happened in uh, Jerusalem in 33 AD or, or however we want to date that. But, um, but there's a sense in which we read that verse and the lamb has always been slain uh, before the foundation of the world. So um, on the one hand, we can mark it within history. On the other hand, we have to kind of understand it outside of history, um, which makes sense if we consider the subject who was crucified, which is God, who's not bound in time. And I think further, in the Mass, we see this kind of replayed again, because like we talked about last time, we don't believe that Christ is sacrificed again during the Mass, but rather that his original sacrifice is brought to us. So every time the Mass is said, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross is extended through space and time, subsequently redeeming all space and time. All this is to say that for Christians, time is not a series of disparate moments, which are only connected by human structures like hours or days or weeks or years. Time is the unfolding of redemption, where the crucified Christ stands not only at the center of all time, but also at the beginning and the end of time, binding every moment together by his great love for his creation as demonstrated by the cross. So the cross then, and I think I've probably mentioned this in multiple sermons, and I think I may have even mentioned it last week, um, is, according to T.S. Eliot, the timeless moment. The cross bleeds into all moments, which means it's hardly chronological in the secular sense. Uh, There was a... Oh, man. There we go. Uh, There was a Jewish rabbi named Abraham Heschel um, who says that uh, the goal of spiritual living is not to amass a wealth of information, but to find sacred moments. And the Christian conviction, in line with what Heschel says, is that every moment is holy, that every moment is being redeemed, um, and therefore a portal by which we enter into eternity. We perhaps see that in its clearest, most distilled point during the Mass, but every moment is a moment in which we are to live out of the Mass into that moment. Um, When I'm changing uh, Jude or Rowan's diaper, when we're giving them baths, Uh, when we're counseling someone, when we're sitting with the sick, uh, when you're at your job uh, from nine to five, what feels mundane is actually being transfigured. It's sacred. But the task is for us to find that. Um, If you ever want a a very short but challenging read, Brother Lawrence's Practicing the Presence of God is a really wonderful little book. Uh, Brother Lawrence was a monk who uh, washed the dishes in the monastery And the whole point of the book is coming to a recognition that God is present right now, and that makes this moment holy. And I think uh, we can even go a step further than Brother Lawrence does and say, if that's true, if every moment is holy, uh, then it ought to change the way we view everyone in whom we come in contact with in a moment. They are always someone for whom Christ has died, 
And so we have to sort of treat them as such. There's kind of this mystical encounter when we, uh, when we uh, see the world this way with the other, where the other becomes a conduit by which we encounter God. Uh, Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Really short. You could probably read it in a sitting, um, but it's, it's uh, power-packed. Ephesians five fifteen through 16 gives us a little bit of a warning related to time. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So just like the world has its calendars to encapsulate the rhythms of its life in time, so the church has its own calendar to mark time in light of our redemption. And we also do this uh, because we understand that the church is the true Israel of God. And if you read the Old Testament, you come to realize that Israel had its own unique calendar that's laid out in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in a book like Leviticus, which, you know, you get your year uh, Bible reading plan and you get through Genesis and Exodus all right, and then you hit Leviticus and it's sort of, uh, sometimes the enthusiasm dies out, at least for me. Um, but Leviticus has a lot of information in this regard. Um, the, our, and, and I would say the New Testament churches, feasts and, and fasts are structured similarly to the Jewish calendar, except that we see everything in the Jewish calendar as transfigured or fulfilled by Christ. So, for example, the Mass, which we celebrate every week, is the Passover, in the sense that Christ is our Passover lamb. Uh, St. Paul even says this in 1 Corinthians. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us, therefore let us keep the feast. Well, we don't keep the feast by celebrating the actual Passover. We keep the feast by celebrating the Mass. The Passover is the type and shadow that Thomas Aquinas talked about in his hymn last week that we looked at at the end. So we don't celebrate the actual Jewish feast uh, because the thing that those feasts pointed to is now here, which is Christ. Um, Every now and again, you hear about people celebrating a Passover Seder, you know, um, usually uh, 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 people who are not Jewish will do it as a, as a sort of learning tool. And, you know, if you know someone Jewish and they invite you, I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just uh, a lot has changed in Judaism. And so we don't even know really what their Passover looked like when Jesus was alive. It's, it's evolved. So, you know, I mean, we can certainly learn when we go to something like that. It's just not, maybe not quite the same thing exactly. Um, So instead of the summer and the fall and the winter and the spring, the church calendar is split into uh, some main seasons, Advent, Christmas, Lent, Easter, and Ordinary Time, which you can see on your handout. And there are a few other little ones. And even um, even feast days uh, that aren't quite as major have their own little mini seasons. So for example, today is the Nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. There is now an octave of the nativity of the uh, an octave of the nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, which is eight days, uh, where you know we we just reflect on this event of of Mary's birth. So instead of federal holidays, we have days of obligation, holy days of obligation. So I thought for tonight we could talk a little bit about some of the um, some of these holy days and uh, facets of our calendar. So first. Uh, it might help to go backwards. I don't know why this is. Yeah, there we go. Might help to go back here to the uh, to the picture that you have uh, printed out. Um, so we begin. The church year begins. The new year is Advent, 
which uh, surprisingly is going to be here before we know it. It's coming up soon. Uh, Now, you'll notice the color of Advent is purple, as is the color of Lent. That's because seasons before a major feast, like Christmas or Easter, tend to be penitential, and purple is a penitential color for us. So Advent, like Lent, is a time of penance and self-reflection. It is not a time of mindless consumerism, which we are told by our larger culture that it is. The day after Thanksgiving, you have to go, uh, you know, indulge your shopaholicism. Um, So Advent should actually be a a fairly somber time of year, um, which then leads us up to Christmas. And Christmas is not just a day, but rather a 12-day celebration, um, much like Hanukkah. You know, Hanukkah, they have, uh, you know, they'll open a present every night. Um, you might do something like that on Eight Christmas. Eight Crazy Nights. Eight Crazy Nights, that's right. I always like how most people think that the 12 days of Christmas lead up to Christmas. Yes. No, they start on Christmas. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, you see that uh, like a lot of uh, TV stations do their 12 days of Christmas special. Every night they play a movie leading up to Christmas. Or radio stations will do that. But it's actually, Christmas is the, the, the 25th is the first day. And then after that, there are 12 days. And also, right around Christmas, it's very interesting to me uh, that we celebrate a number of feast days. I mean, we're, if you come to all the services, we're here pretty much every day for a week. Um, on the 23rd, it's the Feast of St. John the Baptist. On the 20, no, no, it's the Feast of St. John the Evangelist. The, uh, and then the 26th and the 27th are St. Stephen and the Holy Innocents. Um, and that has to do with martyrdom. Uh, St. John, it's you know, believed, was never, uh, never died. Um, or at least that was the old, uh, uh, old rumor. But it, he, it's possible he died. Well, it's probably he died, just not through martyrdom. So we call him a martyr in will, but not in deed. We call uh, John the Baptist a martyr in deed and will. He both was killed and he lived a life of martyrdom. And the Holy Innocents, uh, the children who Herod slaughtered, are children in, uh, in deed but not will because they weren't old enough to, um, to assent to being slaughtered. Um, but it's an interesting time. It's interesting to me that we celebrate those feasts right around the same birth of our Lord. Um, but it's because he is the ultimate sacrifice. And so we remember the sacrifices that were made in light of him. So the Christmas season uh, gives way to Epiphany Tide. Um, Epiphany is where we focus on the three wise men the most, um, and it is the uh, the significance of the season is Christ being a light to the world. Christ being a light to the world, which is where Epiphany comes from. We have a great Epiphany um, during this season. We recognize Christ is for us. After Epiphany, uh, we have a brief reprieve. Uh, a couple sort of ordinary weeks, and then we get into uh, Lent, which actually begins before Lent begins. We begin with uh, Sundays called Sexagesma, Quinquagesma. Uh, these are uh, means like 60 days before Easter, 40 days before Easter, or 50 days before Easter. Um, and uh, it's like a little mini Lent. It's during that season we have Shrove Tuesday. Uh, we eat our pancakes. We make our confession. Uh, Shrove is the word for confession. Um, and then we begin Lent in which we fast. Um, And of course, fasting, we'll talk a little bit more about this, but fasting is not giving up something that is bad that you should already be giving up anyways. So it's not, I'm giving up cigarettes for Lent this year. Well, why don't you go ahead and just give up the cigarettes because it's bad for you? Or I'm not going to binge watch Netflix this Lent. Well, you shouldn't be binge watching Netflix 
anyways, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but people will do that, you know. Um, and there is, a, there is an actual definition of what fasting is, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it's common to fast in Lent, to abstain during Lent. Um, and we do that to prepare ourselves, of course, for the great feast of Easter. Um, after Holy Week, we celebrate Easter, and Easter itself is also a season. There are a couple weeks in Easter. And then uh, the Easter season ends on the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, we, of course, in the middle of, in between those two, we celebrate the Feast of the Ascension as well, Christ going up into heaven. Um, and then we celebrate uh, Whitsuntide or Pentecost, um, and that's when the Holy Spirit comes on the church in Acts chapter 2. The season ends uh, really uh, with, the, with Trinity Sunday, which is there for us to rehearse our belief in the Trinity. Um, because uh, the Trinity is a pretty complicated subject, and it's very easy to accidentally become a heretic uh, when you're uh, talking about the Trinity. So it's common for us to say the Athanasian Creed, which is more uh, complicated than the Nicene Creed, but it gives us more precise definition, or at least that might be the sermon or something like that on that day. Scattered throughout the calendar, there are holy days of obligation. These are days when historically uh, you were required to go to church or or church attendance was mandatory. Uh, These days would include big ones like Christmas and Easter um, and uh, All Saints Day and a few. There are a few others. Um, If you ever get a St. Augustine's prayer book, it lists them and probably uh, Archbishop Haverland lists them as well. Um, So. For the Catholics uh, throughout church history, both Orthodox and, uh, and Western, um, days of obligation means you had to attend or else it was a sin. Protestants, kind of in reaction to Roman Catholicism, emphasized the opposite tendency. No one has the right to tell us what we should or shouldn't do. I go to church when I want to. Uh, kind of thinking. Um, Anglicans sort of were in the middle. Uh, we pared down the number of days of obligation, but we kept days of obligation as a thing. So in the front of the prayer book, um, in, the, in the preface, uh, even in the 28 prayer book, it does tell you that there are days of obligation, um, and it lists them for you as well. Um, now, it's probably important to talk about the word obligation for a moment, um, because that's kind of a bad word to us. We don't really like things that we are obligated to do so much we like to be freer than that why is this not working there we go Uh, but the word comes from ligo which means bound so what are we bound by Um, and i think it's important to say we're not bound by the law so much as we are bound by love so we shouldn't think of days of obligation as a day where we are mandated to attend church or else, finger wag, but rather days of obligation are days when we recognize that we are bound by love to the church and the practice of the church. And we know we're bound to each other then by love, by virtue of our baptism um, and the vows that we take as we enter the koinonia, the fellowship of the church, the unity of the body of Christ. Um, So, Uh, those are holy days of obligation. Now, I think it's helpful to talk a little bit about fasting and feasting because these are two major themes in the calendar. We have seasons of fasting, seasons of feasting. Typically, fasting precedes feasting. Um, Even, actually, interesting, if you pick up an Ordo calendar or if you see the one over in Jan's office and you find a holy day, a feast of some sort, like even today, 
usually the day before a major feast is called a vigil of whatever, vigil of the nativity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, something like that. And the vigil is itself a penitential day, a day of fasting, in order to prepare for the feast day that's coming up and the octave that comes up. So, uh, so even on uh, just kind of what seems like a random feast day, there is a day of fasting that precedes that um, before the feast. Um, I always call feasting and fasting the yes and no, which form the basic rhythm of the church's life together. Because as Christians, we do that, right? Um, on the one hand, we recognize all truth is God's truth. So when we encounter truth in another religion or even in someone who's not religious, there's a sense in which the church says, yes, that's true. There's also a sense in which we say, not, no, you know, there are some things we need to baptize in order to bring this into the fullness of truth. Um, so the church extends yeses and nos. Feasting and fasting are another way of extending that yes and that no. When we feast, we're enjoying material created things as God has created them to be enjoyed. When we fast, we say no to indulgence. Um, and both of those things, I would argue, are equally important for us to know how to do. If the church was always feasting, we would be gluttons. And if we were always fasting, we would, I think, still be gluttons just in the opposite way. But we wouldn't, we wouldn't appreciate created things. We'd be dead. We'd, we would be dead. That's true, too. Very true. Most of us are not cut out to live amongst life of eating like a bean a day or something. Um, in their book, Liturgy for Living, Charles Price and Louis Whale state, every unit of time is an occasion for meeting God. Every unit of time is an occasion for meeting God. So that every time is a time to observe, celebrate, and participate in the great mystery of Christ. And feasting and fasting both have elements in which we are participating in that mystery. It's two sides of the same coin. We need to be able to fast. We need to be able to feast. Um, the calendar then, I, th I would say, is a gem that has multiple facets. You know, you hold it up to the light and you see it uh, reflecting in different ways. Uh, and, and sort of the thing in the center is the sacrifice of our Lord. And this is clear, I think, on every level. But one specific example uh, of that would be the daily office, morning and evening prayer, where we focus on new life and resurrection in the morning and at, in the evening, at evening prayer and at Compline, which is a short little office you pray before bed, we focus on rest and death. And then, of course, noontime prayer, if you do noontime prayer, is centered around our Lord on the cross because it's believed he died about noon. So the whole day has a rhythm to it. The morning, new life, waking up, noon, the death of our Lord, and at night, our own deaths and mortality. Given the Christocentricity of the Christian calendar, we might say that Christ himself is the liturgy of the church because all of the events that we've talked about that make up the calendar are centered around him, beginning with his birth, going through his life, culminating in his passion and his resurrection and his ascension. Um, so the church calendar is very, uh, very Christocentric, even ordinary time, right? We read a gospel lesson every week, and it's about something he did, a, a lesson he taught, or a healing he performed, or some kind of miracle. So let's talk a little bit about fasting and, oh, that's all I had for slides, actually, uh, about fasting and feasting in and of themselves. So what is fasting? 
broadly speaking, we could say fasting is um, the intentional lessening of food. Um, during the Christian cycle, uh, we practice fasting during the Nativity cycle, Advent. Um, during the Resurrection cycle, um, we begin the uh, observing the fast during pre-Lent, the Jesima Sundays, and we ramp it up to a full fast during the Great Lent. Throughout history, fasting has changed uh, its, its appearance, but the heart of the thing is still the same, uh, regardless of how the outward expressions have changed. Um, so uh, even East and West practice fasting differently. If you're Orthodox, you fast more often, and it's a little bit more rigorous. In the West, we're kind of wimpy. Uh, we define fasting as one full meal and two small meals in a day. One full meal and two small meals in a day. And of course, for people who are on medication, who are sick, who are pregnant, who are nursing, who are manual laborers, these rules might be relaxed. It's usually better for them to talk to their priest or bishop about how they should do, um, how they should observe the fasting. They might give something else up in place of food. Um, but, uh, but that's the general rule. One full meal, two small meals in a day. Some days, however, are not just days of fasting. They're days of abstinence. And abstinence means that, um, that you can have no flesh meat, no beef, pork, or poultry, but fish is allowed. This is why McDonald's has the uh, fish fillet, because they didn't want to lose business uh, from Catholics on Fridays during Lent. So they, Wendy's has the fish sandwich only during Lent. Right, yes. Yeah, some of them only bring it out during Lent, because that's the only time anybody wants uh, fish from fast food. So yes, uh, and abstinence is on abstinence is on really uh, really important days. Like Ash Wednesday is a day of abstinence. Good Friday is a day of abstinence. But there are not many days. Uh, Fridays during Lent are days of abstinence. But even those have been kind of laxed a little bit lately. Um, but a good practice for sure. Just because the rules have been laxed doesn't mean we have to necessarily lax our practice. But um, anyways. Uh, also, um, so, so Fridays throughout the year are days of fasting, not just during Lent. During Lent, they're days of abstinence and fasting. Um, every day that's not a feast day during Lent is a day of fasting, um, except for feast days. So like uh, St. Patrick's Day, which sometimes occurs during Lent, is a great day for feasting and drinking lots of beer. Um, typically, alcohol. Typically, alcohol is not... Alcohol kind of breaks the spirit of fasting. So during Lent on fasting days, it's best not to drink um, if you can. Um, though, of course, you know, don't be rude either. You know, I wouldn't be rude. If you offer me a beer during Lent, I'll probably drink it. Um, and then uh, the other days of fasting throughout the year are ember days. Uh, ember days are days that we set aside to pray that, uh, that God would increase the number of godly ministers in the church. And there are four of them a year, one for each season, uh, calendar season. And uh, you observe them on Wednesday, Friday, Sunday. Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. Wednesday, Friday, Saturday. Um, and so you would fast Wednesday, Friday, Saturday of that week. So why fast? Why should we do it? Seems kind of inconvenient. Okay, Focus. How so? It just kind of remind you about what a, you know, the season, the meaning, mm-hmm. uh, sacrifices that were made for us. Yes. 
yeah, if, if the sacrifice Christ made for us was death on the cross, you'd think we could, you know, eat a little lighter, yeah. at, at, in theory at least. Well, at the last supper, Jesus did not partake of it. Mm. He fasted, so to speak, mm-hmm. in a small way yes. before his crucifixion. You're right. There was a whole bunch in the Old Testament. I don't remember off the top of my head the earliest book that I saw, but I saw all kinds of them where they fasted and repented. Yes. (laughs) I think this is a contritional pattern. Yes. Penance? Penance, yeah, yeah, penitential. It's a penitential act. Yep. Yeah. So actually, the the reading for the first Sunday of Lent is the reading of our Lord in the wilderness, where he fasts for forty days, and he's tempted in the wilderness at the end of those forty days. So that is kind of our basis for our our observation of Lent is his forty days in the wilderness. We go into the wilderness with him. And of course, we could even point to that wilderness wandering uh, being paralleled to Israel in the Old Testament, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, um, which is a sort of fast on their part, though, uh, because they were bad. Um, We also see that Christ commands us, uh, biblically speaking, Christ commands us that we not look somber like the hypocrites when we fast, which assumes that fasting is a normative practice, um, that we should do it, just don't do it for show. And of course, we also see in Acts 13 that fasting played a major part in the early church. Um, So practically, penance, remembrance, I think are both really, uh, really good points. Um, But there's also a sense in which fasting helps us gain control over our passions through a kind of detachment and self-mastery over material things, which actually, I would argue, enables us to live freely, right? The person who is Um, addicted to unhealthy foods, addicted to alcohol, um, addicted to, you know, uh, soda, is not really living freely because they can't enjoy the thing for itself. They have to have the thing, right? So that's not the right use of a thing to be addicted to it. Um, The right use of the thing is to have the freedom to use it or not. And when you do use it, to use it well. So there's a difference, obviously, between having a nice cocktail with your dinner and consistently getting drunk out of your mind, you know, every, every night. Um, those two things are very different. Um, and when we talk about freedom, you know, to use something freely, I think we don't mean uh, to use it whenever you want. Uh, that's not really a Christian understanding of freedom. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever I want whenever I want. It's the ability to do what God has commanded us to do. Um, so there's a sense in which being free, uh, we're most free when we're servants to Christ. So the goal of any spiritual discipline, whether it's fasting, whether it's silence and solitude, uh, or, or whatever else it is that we're doing, is the reintegration of the person. Um, so, uh, so one of the ways Christians have spoken about the fall throughout the history of the church is in terms of disintegration, uh, that we were unified when we were created in a singular love for God. And in sinning, Augustine says, our heart was divided into as many channels as the things it loves because we've taken our eyes off of God and we've tried to fill that kind of 
innate part of ourselves that is supposed to be directed towards God with other things, the pursuit of wealth, uh, the pursuit of power, um, the pursuit of uh, pleasure, you know, all these things. We try to fill and uh, we often fail. Um, and, uh, and when we hit rock bottom, we're, we're, we become like the prodigal son. We're faced with the choice of you know, turning the right way or um, continuing down a, a, a bad path. Martin Thornton, who is an Anglican theologian who writes a lot about spirituality and spiritual practice, says, The whole purpose of mortification, fasting, almsgiving, and discipline is to replace concupiscence, that is, that part of us that wants what we shouldn't have, um, by tranquilitas, tranquility, to reestablish harmony with people, creation, and God. So concupiscence is that, it's that... It's that thing that we know is bad. I know that thing is bad for me. I shouldn't smoke that whole cigar right now, but I just want it, you know, and I, I can't, I just I gotta have it, you know. And, uh, and so, of course, we can control that urge. You know, we might have the urge and still not do it, but the urge is still there, you know. Um, so concupiscence is kind of the thing that pushes us towards sin. Um, so the goal then is for us to replace that push with tranquility, with peace, with a satisfaction with what we have, being content. That ability to say, not only am I not going to listen, but I'm going to say the desire itself is not helpful or good. By fasting, then, we are committing an act of self-sacrifice, which for the Christian becomes united to Christ's act of sacrifice because we abdicate our will, not our will, but thy will. And the right ordering of the self is important because it helps us more fully embrace what truly matters. So there's a prioritization that's occurring during fasting. It's not just about deprivation. I'm not just not eating. I'm, try- I'm going to fill that time I would be spending eating or cooking or whatever, um, sitting in the drive through line, uh, with things that really matter. Prayer, the Eucharist, uh, etc. Good works instead of temporal material things. And of course, this is never to say that material things are bad or evil in and of themselves. Like I said, there's nothing wrong with a nice bottle of wine or, uh, or a good steak dinner or something like that. Those are really good things that we should appreciate. But we have to rightly prioritize. We ought to enjoy the good thing God's, God gives us, but we shouldn't be beholden to those things at the expense of prayer or other spiritual disciplines. So we recognize uh, both the goodness of creation and also the importance of the spiritual at the same time. And finally, it should be mentioned that fasting and other spiritual disciplines that we might practice are, as Thornton would say, subsidiary parts of ascetical theology of self-discipline, which compose methods and disciplines which dispose the soul to receive the motions of the Holy Ghost. It is the art of cooperating with grace cooperating with grace. So we discipline ourselves to cooperate with grace. But fasting is important, but it's also kind of a bummer at times. Um, So let's talk about feasting, the importance of food. Uh, The task of a Christian ascetic isn't purely about deprivation. At least it shouldn't be. Um, We should never have a negative identity. I should not be defined by the things I abstain from, but rather uh, any abstention should be for a greater good. Bless you. Thank you. 
So this is why we need to talk about feasting as well, because it would be, it would be unhealthy for us to be continually depriving ourselves. So by feasting, I think we mean enjoying food and drink intentionally. And if fasting carries a spirit of sobriety and solemn observation, feasting, as you can imagine, would uh, carry a spirit of celebration. Um, I have a great book that I love to use called Drinking with the Saints, um, and it has uh, cocktail recipes for all the feast days on the church calendar, uh, which I think is really cool. Um, so it's nice, you know, on a, on a cool feast day to have some friends over and to make some nice cocktails, you know, and just enjoy company and enjoy our time together. My friend, Father Miles, when we all lived in central Virginia, uh, on the feast of – he's a big Lord of the Rings fan. And it's the feast of the oh, – I'm trying to think. It's one of the Marian feasts. Maybe it's the Nativity. In the Lord of the Rings universe, that Marian feast day is the day that Frodo destroys the ring. And so my friend Father Miles had this giant feast on that day because it was a feast, you know, whatever feast day. So we went over to his house and we all did evening prayer and and everything. And then we had this giant, he had made like uh, this beautiful dish with lamb and he made nice drinks. And, you know, it's just a great day for us to enjoy each other's company and um, and to celebrate such a wonderful holy day in our calendar. Holy Day. I can't remember what, which one it was exactly, but, um, but it was holy. Um, so we feast during the nativity cycle, the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, we should be partying uh, during the resurrection cycle from Easter until Pentecost. Quite a, like four weeks of, uh, of celebrating, really. Um, and also we have our other feast days throughout the year. St. Patrick's Day uh, you know, is, is kind of known for it. St. Uh, Valentine's Day, you know, things like that. Um, Other feast days uh, that we celebrate throughout the calendar are uh, are events in the life of our Lord, the life of our Lady, like today, uh, or faithful saints who provide us examples of the faith. Um, The Book of Common Prayer has feast days built into it, uh, and they tend to be, if they're not about Christ or Mary, they're about the Apostles. Um, I think that's pretty much all that's in the prayer book. The Missal and the Ordo calendar, which we also have, uh, Jan has one in her office, the Ordo calendar, has a lot more feast days, a lot more saints, a lot more events going on, a lot more Marian feasts and things like that. Um, These are important uh, days for us. I, I have received complaints that uh, I'm too Catholic because I talk about feast days a lot and we celebrate them here. But, um, but I think that, uh, that there is not a better example for us than looking at some of these saints and events throughout the history of the church. God is not in competition with his saints. Uh, there, you know, when we say uh, that Mary's ascent to the angel, let it be to me according to thy will, uh, when we celebrate her for that, we're not taking anything away from God, quite the opposite. Uh, we're praising him through that wonderful event. Uh, we're praising him through the army of martyrs who have gone before us, who have given their lives for the faith. Uh, there is not competition between the saints. Um, so uh, every feast day is an opportunity for us to reflect not only on how God has worked in history, but also to, give, uh, to expand our imaginations for how we might cooperate with God better. By studying the lives of faithful people who have done this before us, we might learn a thing or two. So maybe sometimes it's too Catholic, but I don't care. (laughs) Yes? That um, Ordo calendar also has all kinds of notations Mm. on it that tells you 
and um, usually at the end of the year, Jan will ask if anybody wants. Yeah. One. You can order one. You can have one for yourself. I think they're like five dollars. They're not expensive. Yeah, yeah. And it has all the notations for what the different days are, and the the number for that day will be in the color mm -hmm. of the hangings that are supposed to be in church that day. Yeah, it's a good reference to let you know, is it a penitential day? Mm -hmm. If it is, then I should probably be fasting. Is it mm -hmm. feast day? Mm -hmm. If so, I should probably be drinking. I think um, it actually <laughs> says uh, abstinence or something. Yeah, it does tell you which days are abstinence, yes. yep. And it also tells you some liturgical things. There are some days where you don't need to say the Gloria or the Creed in the Mass, and there are other days where you are required to. Like Sundays, you're required to do it on Sundays, um, but not on just like a regular Monday. But if it's a feast day... You're supposed to, like today, you're supposed to do the Gloria and the Creed. Um, so yeah, so the calendars are really helpful, and they help us live in this rhythm, see time in a different way. Uh, also, to plug our Facebook page, I try and, uh, at the beginning of every week, look at what feast days are being celebrated that week and put a little picture and bio and the collect for the day from the missile uh, on the Facebook page. Um, so one way to hopefully sort of redeem social media, I guess, I don't know. <laughs> So why do we need to feast? Um, as Dan said, we'd be dead if we didn't, uh, which is true. There's a lot going on when we talk about food. From the very beginning of the scriptures, we see food playing a pretty prominent role. Uh, we have the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, so there is kind of a basic natural relationship, I think, reflected in, in the prominence of food throughout scripture. And that is that you are what you eat. You are what you eat. Food also has a social component. You know, there's something about, um, about going to someone's house and sharing a meal with them or even going out to a nice restaurant with another family or a couple or a friend and spending, uh, spending a good time with them, you know, enjoying, enjoying a nice restaurant. Um, if you think about this in the ancient world, this would have been even more significant, right? Um, when we do it to each other, you know, if I invite you over for dinner at my house, I'm saying I want to spend time with you. Um, in the ancient world, when there wasn't just a bodega on the corner where you could get food or a Safeway, you know, around, around the block, there was a very real sense in which I am giving from my, the, the food I've produced, you know, my sheep, my wheat to make the bread, my grapes to make the wine. And I recognize you as someone worthy of sharing life with. So there's this kind of deep spiritual and social component to meals um, we see it throughout scripture, right? Abraham and his three visitors, what does he do for them when they come to him? He makes Sarah go, you know, make the nice food for them. Uh, we see it in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, right? The offering up of not the crippled lambs or the diseased lambs, but the best lamb is what's offered on the altar for God, um, and so there's kind of that idea of meal being shared with him. Of course, we give the whole thing over to him. Though the, uh, the priests would often get the cut, you know, they would get a cut of the sacrifice as well. Um, we see that there was dining with God, you know, Moses dined with God. Um, and then in the New Testament, uh, what's Jesus' first miracle? The, the wedding feast at Cana. And this is where, uh, you know, the really fundamentalists will say that wasn't really water or wine. That was just grape juice. Um, but the, it doesn't explain the uh, wedding, uh, the wedding coordinator who says, uh, you've waited till now to bring out the good stuff. 
Because the practice was you bring a little bit of the good stuff out at the beginning, everyone would get drunk, and then you could bring out the bad wine because no one would notice. Um, but Jesus turns the water into wine later in the party, and the guy says, why'd you hold out on us? Um, farther into uh, the Last Supper with the wine, that being a Seder, most likely, mm-hmm. the rules for Passover wine are very strict, and it's wine. It's yes. Not even, and it's not weak wine either. No, it's not. No, it's not. Uh, wine makes the heart glad, the psalmist says. <laughs> well, they say in the Old Testament, too, over and over, you know, with the reference to uh, burning the, the meat. Yeah. The aroma is pleasing to the Lord. Yes. A we sweet-smelling get, savor. Yes. Yeah, I get hungry every time. Which, fun fact, liturgically, this is why uh, incense is used. Um, because if you're ever in a service with incense, we'll use it when Bishop Chad is here. Um, it gets on your clothes. And throughout the day, it kind of hits you a little bit. You say, oh, oh, yeah, that smells really good. It smells like church. Um, but it's a reminder. You are the living sacrifice being offered up to God. You are the sweet-smelling aroma. Um, so you can tell that when people complain about incense. <laughs> Speaking of that, I have a friend who uh, at his church... He has people who complain about incense, so he put dry ice in the thurible one Sunday, and they and and people started coughing, <laughs> and then he opened it up and showed them it's just dry ice. <laughs> said, oh, when we were streaming services, you could hear people cough from watching the video feed, you know. <laughs> so Jesus begins his ministry with a miracle that pertains to food and wine. You know, this party uh, at the wedding. Um, But we feast, really, because it's a foreshadowing of the great wedding supper of the Lamb. This idea of of feasting being a kind of perpetual reality uh, in heaven. Um, There's a great book by Robert Farrar Capon called The Supper of the Lamb. Uh, I just bought a copy of it for uh, Dana and Karen Bailey because they just had their kitchen redone. And so I thought it would be appropriate. he He was an Episcopal priest and he wrote articles in the New York Times on food. Uh, and cooking and stuff. And so the book is part uh, part spiritual meditation and reflection and part recipe book. Um, so he's got some really, it's a really cool read if you ever are interested. Um, but it, it talks a lot about the idea of the supper of the lamb and, and the importance of food together. Uh, the Victorines, who are one of my favorite groups of Christians, they were a medieval uh, monastery in Paris. Um, they taught that sometimes a nice beer or meat is a better antidote to the temptations of lust and gluttony than total abstention. Sometimes you just need to relax, drink a beer, have a steak, watch some football, you know, something like that. Uh, Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton says, uh, we must thank God for beer and burgundy by not drinking too much of them. (laughs) He might have, yes. Well, and also, uh, also Martin Luther says... Whenever the devil harasses you, seek the company of men or drink more or joke and talk nonsense or do some other merry thing. Sometimes we must drink more, sport, recreate ourselves, and even sin a little despite the devil so that we leave him no place for troubling our consciences with trifles. We are conquered if we are too conscientiously, if we try too conscientiously not to sin at all. So when the devil says to you, do not drink, answer him, I will drink and write freely just because you told me not to. I like the quote. I don't, I don't like sin a little, but I do like the quote other than that. So we ought to 
fast to master our passions and feast in order to enjoy what God has given us, to enjoy each other. Um, and, and we feast because we recognize at the heart of our reality is this kind of Eucharistic mystery. And every time we eat together, uh, we are participating in that coffee hour, uh, jokingly called the eighth sacrament, uh, in a sense participates in the thing that we just did. Um, liturgically, sacramentally, we all just shared the body and blood of Christ binding us together in the church. And we come to the fellowship hall where we have some snacks, maybe some Bailey's Irish cream if the right people are doing coffee hour. Um, and we, uh, and then we, and we, we socially uh, realize what we have just rehearsed uh, liturgically upstairs. So together, fasting and feasting, both two sides of the same coin, uh, train us to walk with Christ holistically. They treat us as whole people, not as one or the other, uh, not pure ascetic, not pure glutton. And they go beyond cognitive assent to actual practice. They are a lived reality. It's not a checklist. It's something you do. It's something you live into. It's not just about training our minds to assent to that set of propositions like we talked about last week, but it's about conforming our whole beings to the image of Christ. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. So fasting and feasting and teach us to enjoy creation by rightly ordering our wills. And so in this respect, they're like two wheels on a bike. We need both of them working in conjunction to get us to our destination. And the church calendar is an excellent way then to train ourselves in this respect. So fasting and feasting teach us to participate with grace, fasting by freeing us to listen to the Holy Spirit while feasting to enjoy the gifts that he has given us.